Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome listeners to another episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch and with me, finishing out the zombie conversation while Aaron is moving, is Kales Davis. Good evening. For the month of October, we asked our donors to vote on what zombie movie they would like to hear us cover. And Peter Boyle's 28 Days Later came out the winner. It's definitely a favorite of mine, and I'm anxious to get into the conversation with you, Kales. Before we do that, for any new listeners, know that this is a spoiler-filled podcast. We like to go in-depth with our movie discussion, so be warned if you have not seen this great film. Go see it for your own safety, sanities, whatever we call that, <laughs> and then come back and join the conversation with us. All right, all the logistics out of the way. Kales, why don't we start with one more takeaways? What do you got for me? I have um, Collapse. Um, this film... This film feels more than just the collapse of society. It's the collapse of humanity. Um, you mostly get this when you get to the second half of the film, when we get to the soldiers at the blockade and the military and how how they use some devious means when they're calling for help or asking people to come for salvation. We'll get into that later on. But yeah, it seems like when when things go really, really bad, you know, in films like this and zombie films altogether, people lose their sense of morality. They lose their sense of beliefs. They lose their sense of dignity. It's like, well, everything is going bad, so I might as well just go bad, too. I got to do what I got to do to survive. And I feel that 20 Days Later definitely captures that collapse in social unrest. Definitely. And it ties really well into my one word takeaway, which is drastic. Watching the movie, I've, I've seen this now, I think, three times. Once, I believe, I rented it from Blockbuster, which tells you how long ago it was when I first saw this. And then I bought it because I enjoyed it so much. Recently watched it maybe two or three years ago. I said recently, you know, in the last couple of years. And then, of course, watched it for this episode. But the word that really came to mind was drastic. And when I say that, I mean... Not only the drastic circumstances, and as you mentioned, the depths in which our characters and the world has gotten to in terms of having to take drastic measures to survive, but also Boyle's direction feels very just, boom, right in your face. Like from the very beginning, it's chaotic. The film style, this documentary, digital graininess gets you right into the craziness that is going on, even though it's kind of a like a deterrent to what is actually happening. So I don't know what's going on outside of the world that we're getting introduced to other than through these monitors. And then as the monitors pull back, we see that a monkey is being subjected to that. And in a sense, we are too as an audience. I feel like that in and of itself feels drastic we don't know why that's happening. We're just sort of thrown into it. But everything after that, nothing feels very calm. It all feels like we're on the verge of either something attacking our characters or something drastic happening to them in terms of just a quick kill or running or something like that. So watching this, there's a lot of tension there. And I think that that's all by design, of course. But very few movies do that for me. They really have this movie in particular has that ability to suck me in and then for two plus hours I'm kind of gripping the couch cushion or whatever it is I'm gripping in order to make sure that I'm not being killed or that no zombies are going to jump through the window and kill me because of uh, this crazy virus that's going on. Now Kales, you mentioned I believe, I don't know if it was online or offline, but you mentioned that this is your favorite horror movie. Is that correct? Yes, most definitely. Excellent. I love it when we have somebody on and this is just right up their alley. Aaron Hunley did this with When Harry Met Sally. So I'm going to ask you a similar question than what I asked her. What is it specifically that makes it top the list for you? When I was growing up, I wasn't really a big major fan of horror films, and I hadn't seen any zombie films around the time 28 Days Later came out. 
I remember it was first released in theaters, but I was like around like 10 or 11. So it wasn't like I was going to see it on my own. But then it came. But then some years had passed and I saw a commercial for for FX, the channel. There was a commercial for the film. And I was like, well, I'm not going to watch this. This is like the edited version. I think I might need to see the whole thing. So I went down to my local video store, the video warehouse to rent it. And it was a seven day rental because it had been out for a while. And I remember getting the VHS. I went into my room. I popped it in, and like it was like I was taken to like another world for two hours. Like this is my first zombie film. I hadn't seen Night of the Living Dead. I hadn't seen Dawn of the Dead or anything like that. So watching this for the first time was very jarring. It was like it was like I had never seen zombies. I'm so used to seeing zombies move slow. They're like running. They're sprinting, and it's like they're not looking for your brains. It's like they're just looking to try to kill and maim you in any way possible. And they have this uncontrollable anger and just rage inside of them that will never let up. And another thing that stood out was the look of it. Like seeing it in a digital camera was kind of like weird, and it was like, well, well, what is this? Like it looks so grim and dark and ugly. But that was the director's intent. That was Boyle's intent to do it. And now watching it now, I fully appreciated the um, cameras and the filmmaking he used, and also the screenplay just has so many good allegories to violence, to anger, to the dark side and humanity. You know, just to um, everything dealing with civilization just collapsing and watching the results of it. So I've always had a special place in my heart for him. It's been, always been my number one horror film. I can watch it like day in and day out and never get tired of it. And it's it's one of the films that got me into really taking the art of cinema seriously. Well, with a screenwriter like Alex Garland, knowing what we know now about him as both a writer and director, it doesn't surprise me that some of those themes really come up and we'll get into that later in the conversation but i also wanted to call attention to the zombies themselves this is a very unique approach to a quote zombie film it's a survival horror movie it's a zombie movie it's a lot of these things but in a lot of ways it feels very realistic would be probably the best way i could describe it but probably the most approachable in terms of if something like this happened this seems like it would be this way. I, I think of TV shows and comics like The Walking Dead and how the themes and tone that live inside that narrative are reflected probably as a result of a movie like this, but we still get that sense of motion picture cinematic type flavor where these zombies are just undead and they feel stereotypical. They're, they're clever. I'm talking about The Walking Dead, for instance. But they're also very much the same as what we're used to. 28 Days Later gives us a glimpse to, I think, what it would look like if you or I got hit with this virus called The Rage. And we don't get a lot of backstory about it. We just get kind of the result of it. And I think that's okay. I think it's okay not to necessarily have that kind of backstory unless you're going to progress the narrative in more of like a, a television standpoint. But all those things really make 28 Days Later stand out for me as a great movie in general. You know, I'm not a big fan of horror. There are only certain movies that I can really kind of dig. I'm not really even a big fan of zombie movies, although I'll watch them. It's kind of like NASCAR. I'll watch it if somebody else is interested. Otherwise, I'll probably fall asleep on the couch. But... When it comes to a movie like this, it's got so many layers to it beyond just the themes. I mean, we're talking a great movie to look at in some of the shots, the way in which it's filmed, using that kind of documentary style with that digital cam. It's very, very gritty, and it puts you in the moment with these characters. There are these like behind-the-character behind the cam shots where we're actually, you know, we feel like we're running with them, and then... There are even shots that I remember uh, picking out this time around where we see from the zombie point of view at some point. We see it as if we're the zombie running into the house or through the window, and I'm going, oh my gosh, I'm about to, you're about to, they're about to, you know, all these things at once, and then boom, there's an attack. So even when we know it's coming, because we're actually in that place, it still doesn't lessen the 
impact that it has on my movie experience. And so for that, combined with Danny Boyle and Alex Garland at the helm writing and directing this, it stands out as um, not just a great horror movie, but a just a great movie in general. So we talked a little bit about how it differs from other movies in the zombie family. Do you, as someone who likes horror, and I'm assuming that you've seen those movies that you mentioned, like Night of the Living Dead and um, other zombie-esque movies, Zombieland we mentioned, you know, we've been talking about that the last couple of weeks. Do you think that makes it better than these others, or is it different in a way where it kind of stands on its own? I think it's different in one single aspect. The method of which um, people are turned into these infected. One thing that Alice Garland and Danny Boyle talked about is that they were they were seeing that zombie films were becoming kind of stale at the time. You know, we're constantly seeing like, hey, like zombies are have their infections everywhere, and hey, they want to eat your brains, and if they bite you, you know, it's gonna take some time, but then they um then you start turning like maybe not all of a sudden, but after a while and you have these people hold up in the mall and you go through the whole honky doink kind of rhythm. But this one was different because they set on making these people turn psychologically more than physically. If you notice when the zombies, um, when the zombies either throw up blood or they scratch you or get to you or bite you, you know, you're not physically like turning into like a decomposing body you're psychologically your mind is just turning into full-on anger and rage and garland said his inspiration for that was because of the rage that we see in society you know road rage um hospital rage um you know rage at um you know rage in like sports and everything like that he was in he was interested in that and also the social unrest aspect of it which you do find themes of that in other zombies films, but this one really hits it home. It honestly, it made me think about. It just made me think about when you see riots on TV and you see just people just throwing things at the at the cops or like turning over cars or breaking like and vandalizing buildings. This movie just reminded me of like this is what it would be like. This is what is this is like the parallel to it. You know, when I see that on TV, it just feels like more lifelike and realistic. You know, then just like Dawn of the Dead, which I'm not taking away from any of those films because they're still great. They're still great. They have social political themes that work very well. They're very relevant. But this one just feels more realistic to me because it deals with an innate trait with us as humans, which is the primal, the primal need for violence, which has been there since our conception. That's a great point, Kales. And as I was watching this, I think you're exactly right. And of course, getting input from Alex Garland doesn't hurt. <laughs> but when you look at movies like this or movies about the undead, usually they invite this idea of let's look at ourselves as humans. And it's, I mean, it's a great, it's a great way to do that. You know, whereas Star Trek as a, as a TV series was fantastic at opening up social commentary about who we are as human beings Zombie movies really do hit on helping us understand our innate nature, the id, if you will, in us. You mentioned the the riots and things like that. I recently got done rewatching O.J. Made in America. Uh, it's just I love the the documentary uh, enough to sit through eight plus hours of it again because it's just a fantastic story. But I I remember the Rodney King beatings uh, in as they took place in like junior high, high school. And I remember the, the trial and I remember exactly where I was when the verdict was, was read. But I remember going back to the Rodney King beatings and, and then seeing the LA riots take place soon after. And there was a part of me as a kid. And even now thinking, why would you destroy your city? What is that accomplishing? But it, as I was watching the documentary, I was reminded that that is a result of something bigger that's going on in a human being, that there is anger, there's frustration, there's a, I need to do something in order to get this out. Road Rage is probably a fantastic example. We talk about this in, in, uh, in some, of my, some of my circles of, of friendships where we can be so in control when it comes to talking to each other, we feel like we're on some kind of moral high ground, and then... We're driving and somebody's 
sitting next to us and we're throwing the middle finger up or we're getting really frustrated with someone. I mean, where does that come from? And it's a question that I ask myself all the time. How can I be one way in front of my family or in front of my close friends? But then when I get on the road, I'm a guy you don't want to sit next to because of how angry I am. I go from like banner to the Hulk, depending on the situation. And road rage tends to be that trigger for a lot of us. So 28 days later, plays with that quite a bit. And I think what Garland and Boyle are doing here is they're saying the virus isn't the cause. It is the trigger for something greater that's going on in you. And you're right. It is very different from other zombie movies like Zombieland or um, um, Dawn of the Dead where you're, you're not just fighting off people who are once alive who were once alive and are now dead, you're fighting off really the worst parts, supposedly, about a person. And I guess what Garland and Boyle ask very effectively is, what would happen if we lost control of our senses, if we lost control of ourselves on a mass scale? And I think the result of that is our, our main character, Jim, ending up in an empty hospital plugged up to all these different uh, these cables and stuff like that, surviving and running around naked for about the first five minutes of the movie. <laughs> There's nothing left. There are very few people out there. And in a lot of ways, the first 10 minutes of the movie say a lot about maybe what's inside each one of us if our emotions aren't held in check. So it's a, as you mentioned earlier, it's a very jarring kind of feeling but it's one that I think invites us to be able to explore that as the narrative goes on. Because by the end of the movie, I'm thinking, what would trigger me? Outside of a virus, outside of somebody spitting their blood on me, what would trigger me to go that crazy? Um, I don't know. I didn't ever get a chance to answer the question. I don't know if I want to. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> If you um, drive up here in Washington State, you'll get a lot of triggers to want to turn into rage driving <laughs> on these roads up here. So yeah, <laughs> me um me and my girlfriend both have really bad bouts of road rage, you know. So <laughs> Aaron tells me a lot about the Seattle traffic, and I, mm -hmm. I, I don't even want to think about it. That makes me <laughs> makes me angry just thinking about it. Well, among those other themes that that we've mentioned, there was one that actually stood out to me that Boyle. I think really calls attention to and it's personified in this character of Major Henry as as you mentioned one of the things that drives the narrative is that our main character along with a, a couple other of the supporting characters they hear this this signal that says hey if you go 25 miles north of Manchester uh, we have a I think they said a cure for the virus the way they worded it uh, after the fact, I started thinking, oh, I see. It wasn't a cure for the virus. You you can be free from the virus. The way that it's described, it's pretty ambiguous. But they meet the guy who is the originator of the signal. And as they get to this safe haven, uh, at least what we think is a safe haven, Major Henry, the character's name, is talking to Jim. And I want to read a quote. He talks about the real reason for sending out the signal. He says, eight days ago... I found Jones, one of his guys, with his gun in his mouth. He said he was going to kill himself because there was no future. What could I say to him? We fight off the infected, or we wait until they starve to death, and then what? What do nine men do except wait to die themselves? I moved us from the blockade, and I set the radio broadcasting, and I promised them women, because women meet a future. Is he right? In what he's saying, and, and what does that perspective say about the importance of women within this narrative and really to us as an audience? I will say that he is right in the technical aspects of if – okay, say for instance that there was a big volcano that happened, and it wiped out mostly all of the planet, Then you have a bottleneck of individuals left. Yes, in order to rebuild society, civilization, you would need to um, you would need to um, be able to plant the seeds and be able to like have an offspring of like children, and then they grow up, they have kids, and they grow up, have kids, and then that's how you build rebuild up society again. So he's right about that, you know. Um, 
the restacking of um, the world would have to depend on, you know, a man and a woman coming together like that. But my problem is that, you know, integrity and moral wise is very, very, just very, very evil in a way. You know, you so what you're doing is that you're pretty much making a call out and anybody who hears this is going to come. So what does that say that if a if a if a husband and his wife were to come there? Then you go to the husband and be like, hey, I promised the women. So you know what? You know, your wife, hey, she's got to come. Like, no one would be cool with that. So it feels like very disingenuous for anybody who's really trying to come for salvation because people are out there fighting for their life. They're trying to survive. You know, they may be starving and they may say, like, hey, the military, hey, weapons, hey, protection. You know, it's very, very um, – it's very, very, like, intriguing for anybody to want to come there, especially if you've been fighting on your own. So – He's right in one aspect about the man and woman, you know, coming together, having babies, trying to rebuild the population. But the way he goes about it and the execution of it is very, very terrible. You know, we get to see one of the soldiers who's like he goes rogue and he's like, I'm not doing with this. Like, you have to let them go when they're trying to escape. And they end up taking him out and killing him. And then we see a bunch of bodies over in that same area where he was killed. So they might have killed more and more people who weren't down with this way of baiting you know, trying to get women to become their be their sex objects. You know, um, yeah, I just feel that like twenty five percent of me feels that like he's right, but the other seventy five percent is just downright disgusting. I well, of the twenty five percent that you are right, and the other percent, I'm a hundred percent in agreement with all that. <laughs> when I when I watch this, I do understand his motive, and. There is on the surface this idea that women are needed to repopulate the earth. So in some ways we get an idea of this guy having an altruistic motive because it comes down to if the whole world were men, then humanity would die out pretty quickly. But... And I don't really even disagree with the, with the, uh, with the message itself, like that he sends out, because the fact is he does promote that place as somewhat of a safe haven. It reminded me a lot of the Israelites when they were being given like manna from heaven, and they were being provided for, but to them it was so unpredictable that at one point they're like, no, we want to go back to Egypt because at least we know what slavery is, at least we know what we're getting every day, even if it's the worst. And in some ways, I feel like this was kind of their wilderness. They get to this lush castle, plantation, whatever it is, and he takes them around saying, hey, you could probably use a shower. We've got a boiler with, with hot water. There's a lot of food there. They're just now starting to learn how to kind of cook things. I wonder when electricity is going to be restored. It's probably not. And... So what we're getting is not like a utopia, but we're getting a quote-unquote better situation than what our main character and his travel mates are, are getting currently, seemingly. What we find out is that it's still a prison. It's not like they can walk around in this wide-open garden because it's full of trip mines and that at any point one of the zombies or a bunch of the zombies are going to be uh, coming at them, they're getting protection from a military group, but that military group has an ulterior motive. So when you see all that in context, and then you hear him say things like, I promised them women because women mean a future. No, women do mean a future. That's a, that's a true statement, but that's not why you brought them here. The fact is, just like the zombies, just like these undead, these folks that have no inhibitions, these guys who are military, these military guys, are the same way. They are just giving in to the things that, you know, their carnal instincts as opposed to being intellectual. I'm not ragging on military people. I mean, this is just the characters that we are uh, we're introduced to. It could be anybody. It could be a whole group of masculine, like, town or whatever it is, this, this whole set this whole group of people but the fact is their intent is not to repopulate 
their intent is to get what they need because the fact is, in their minds, it's not even about survival. It's about living until you, you're not. Living until you're dead. Um, we get hints of that with some of these characters where they're trying to make the best of it, but I don't think there's any intent for them to rebuild a better world or rebuild the world again. They're just trying to say, hey, what can we get that might be the best for us? And the fact is, Kales, I think there's a little bit of that in all of us. I, I don't, I've never been part of a zombie apocalypse. I hope never to. But I have, and movies like this help me do this, questioned how selfish or how selfless would I be when given the option to be in this situation. And initially, my, my knee-jerk reaction is, well, I definitely try to be altruistic. But at the same time, given the circumstance, I don't know. Now, I could never see myself sinking so low that I would rape someone. I mean, that's just disgusting. But I do understand when it comes to not having anything else, being that desperate, and the carnal instincts, those that id in us, that that uninhibited nature can come up. And the worst part about us, that road rage times 10, could definitely make us do things we don't want to do. Yeah, it's kind of like the quote, you know, where people say like, hey, like, you know, you're like this right now, but what if I did this to you? And what if I did that to you? And like, I took all of the, the world that you used to know away from you. Like, what would you become? And I think the thing that really stuck in my mind is just, you know, the military guys are not like the infected, but they are monsters in themselves. Um, and of course, in every zombie film, you get the, hey, like, we got to watch out for these humans. Like, instead of the monsters, we need to watch out for these humans. Yes. But in reality, the collapse of this world, and we don't know how far this has gone. We don't know how long these men have been holed up here. We don't even know how, how long they've been away from women or, you know, whatever. But it feels like that these guys just gave in to um to the dark side. And it becomes easier to do that when everything that you know before you has gone all away. And this is just something that you're not used to at all. And you have to try to figure out a way to survive in that world. It's just like Charles Darwin's survival of the fittest. You know, hey, like, I got to get mines. You got to get yours. Like, hey, I can help you. But like um, what Selena says, she's like, hey, you need to be worried about them slowing you down. You know, you're kind of like, it's like me and only me that I need to worry about. I can't really trust anyone else. Yeah, and, and that really is in direct contrast to Frank and Hannah, I believe, are the characters' names that that Jim and Selena meet um, via the, the flashing Christmas lights, which I think is just a fantastic shot, by the way. What a great little beacon. To It's one of my favorite scenes where you have, amidst this chaos... You have this guy with a giant, like, police shield thing uh, as Jim and Selena are coming up. He's like, get in, get in. And while he's guarding these, un you know, blocking these undead, they're trying to get in. And Hannah's like, uh, no, no, these guys are weird. The hospitality that he and to an extent Hannah show them, I think, is intentionally directly contrasted to the way in which um, Henry and his guys take care of them. The fact is, and, and you find it really interesting, there's almost a, a parallel of his living situation and showing Jim and Selena how they're trying to capture water and they can't because there's a drought, and so they're trying to grab the moisture from some of the, the plastic that is on the, on the roof, and it's been difficult, and how they have to dump their crap literal crap over the side after pooping in a bucket uh every morning so he's describing how they're just trying to make things work but they're inviting these folks in to share a cup of coffee to share a bed to have some food um and then there's that great scene later on when they're they're taking off and they go into that supermarket and i'm like yes it's a shopping spree i was totally celebrating with them and i found it really interesting that the one place that i would go is the one place that Selena says, if I never see another chocolate bar again, that will be too soon because that's all we've had to live on. And uh, just little things like that, that kind of play with the opposites of what we expect. Like when you're living in a zombie apocalypse, you want Twinkies. If you're a guy like Tallahassee in this, no, you actually want real canned food, like, like spam and things like that. 
Yeah, it all goes back to the little things. I think the middle passage of the film serves as a great little um, purgatory between the first and the second halves. When they're going on the road trip and you see these great wide shots of the countryside, I mean, yes, there's like dead people there, but you're also seeing just a beautiful landscape of where they're at and it's like it's all very empty but it's also very heavenly in a way and but then you get these little scenes that remind you like hey you know we are fighting for our lives here but it's nice to see the good just the good side of just people coming together and just like laughing even having a good time and making the best out of anything and i think that's always great when you show things like that in a zombie film like it doesn't have to be all bad there could be some good that could be taken out of it so i think it's a great comparison to Zombieland where what we have is this desolate world with short reprieves of like emotional breath that these characters can take like the shopping experience uh, that those beautiful images of the of the city as desolate as it is something that I, I I've really enjoyed about watching these movies is seeing how the cinematographers and the special effects people recreate these uh, very iconic cities like London and the Eye uh, in a way that's incredibly desolate. Like I almost wondered, did they just move everybody out for like an hour and say, "We need to shoot with nobody here"? Can we do that? I don't know. I'd love to get a. I'd love to get kind of insight into that. But you're right. I think what what 28 Days Later uses tonally as a reprieve Zombieland does the opposite of that where they call attention to how much not fun but how well they're adapting to this is Zombieland and then you have short bursts of like fighting off zombies and that's not very scary it's really more of like oh great now it's time for some more fun so I think tone definitely matters but it's interesting to see those same elements used differently in terms of articulating a different kind of tone yeah, that I, I I agree with everything you said. Um, I actually um was going to say what you just said. So yes, I agree with everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it then. We'll just cut it off there. <laughs> Selena, uh, for most of the story, is focused on survival. She's the character that Jim meets early on. She, uh, they meet, I guess, in the mall or something like that. With um, I don't remember who is. It? I guess it's Mark is who she's with. And when I first saw this, I was like, oh, they're together until the moment that Mark <laughs> fights off the zombie and she basically just kills him. And I was like, wow. And that scene where she kills him really quickly, followed by the conversation with Jim about saying, and if you got infected too, I would kill you. No questions asked. One of the questions that I had and I wanted to, I wanted to bring it up with you is that her focus on survival feels a little weird to me, Kales, because we we get that even before knowing about any possibility of freedom from the virus, from the from the radio signal. Why do you think she is focused on survival? Because the way in which she talks about the world she's living in, why not just get killed? Why not just have your life ended and become either completely dead or at least out of your mind insane as a zombie? Well, the fact is, is that for Selena, her backstory isn't communi communicated very well or any at all. I couldn't find any like messaging or any kind of lines that like showed what she had to go through or just a little bit of a backstory for her. But I do know that there was a backstory conceived for the character herself. Um, it turns out that Selena had to kill pretty much her entire family when the when the when the outbreak happened, um, she had to kill her mother. She had to kill her father. And then and she did all that to protect her baby brother. But then she comes to find out that her brother is also infected. So she had to um, like she had to kill all her her home family. And I think when like, I, I, of course, none of us understand what that's like, you know, having to see having to cut down your own family and just like having no one to lean on to. But. I think in the lowest of lows, there's sometimes a prideful resilience that comes that comes together for some people. Like some people are like, wow, like I've been through a lot, but, you know, I'm not going to like let myself succumb to this. Like I think Selena throughout the whole story, you can see that like, yes, like she thinks that there's no way that none of this could get better. She just she comes to the conclusion like, hey, everything is 
effed. You know, like everything is like gone, gone to dire straits, and it's like nothing is ever going to get better. But for her, I think she would rather survive each day on whatever she can in the unpredictability and chaos of it, instead of turning into what her family had turned into, you know, it, it, it wouldn't feel right for her because it would be like, she's like dying of herself as she just gives up and just lets herself like go crazy. So that's good information for me because I didn't necessarily pick up on that. And again, maybe it wasn't articulated in the movie that she had a family she had to kill. So to me, I feel like this is a lifelong vengeance story for her. If that's the if that if that's the true thing that happened, not that she and and it's probably coupled with the sense of guilt, the fact that she had to kill her family in order to survive and to an extent in order to um, really give them rest. And when I when I hear that and I couple it with that moment with Jim going to his parents' house and seeing them laying, I guess, as much as they can peacefully in their bed. It's such a, it's such a contrast because what we see is a seasoned person, someone who for, I would guess, 28 days has been experiencing this. At the very least, if all this happened early on for, for Selena, she would have had to build up a tolerance and build up a normalcy to this. Whereas Jim is still new at this. He, which is why I think he finds the shock of, of, uh, her basically slicing and dicing, um, uh, excuse me, Mark when it, um, when it came down to it, he's like, what in the world? How, how could you do that to me? I think this is a fantastic contrast, but it's also a, great set of kind of like journey bookmarks where we're like maybe even foreshadowing because what Jim eventually needs to get to is that place where he can kill someone. In fact, I think it was, um, I think it was the major that asked him, you've he basically said you've killed someone, haven't you? Because you wouldn't act this way if you didn't. And at some point he, he hesitates, but then he says, yes, I killed a, I killed a little boy. Of course, nobody else knew that. Selena didn't know that. Hannah didn't know that. Frank didn't know that. And so I wonder if the movie is sort of speaking to a little bit of that. Once you kill, there's a little piece of you that gets lost, that kind of goes away when it comes to like your morale, like your your sense of moral compass gets a little jaded. And then the more that you kill, the more things go from being black and white to gray. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's like you become numb to it, you know. Um, for Jim, you know, when he wakes up in the hospital, he's essentially just all new to this, you know. Selena and um, you know, her friend Mark, they've had experience in this where they've been knee deep, they've been running the streets, they've been killing these zombies, they and they know how to do it pretty well from the opening scene. Um, and so they're already they already know what it's like. But Jim, this is all new to him. It's just like he's very naive. He sees his parents, and of course he breaks down like any person would. But Selene just kind of is like, you know, hey, they're probably – like even before they get there, she's like, you know that they're dead. You know, they're already dead, you know, which like calls back to her backstory. So, yes, I feel that it's especially towards the end when Jim does finally unleash, and it's like you you find it hard to differentiate him between Jim and one of the infected. And it comes down to a point where it's like, well – I got to do what I got to do in order to survive. And Jim finally realizes that like killing the kid. Yes, that was a jarring moment. That's probably like something he felt really guilty about. But when it comes down to trying to save Selena and Hannah from the military guys, it's like something just breaks into him. And I wanted to bring it back to the first scene when the doctor is talking to the activists who come in there and try to break the chimpanzees out. Like he's explaining to them like what they're, what they're effective with, what they're doing. He says, if you um, I'm trying to see if I can get it right. And if you don't understand, you can't find the cure. And I feel that for Jim, he comes to a point where he sees that these zombies deceive what they're doing, like they're killing these people and everything like that. But for something in him, he can tap into that. But for all the right reasons, you know, it's just not him going around recklessly just killing and like, you know, he's killing for a purpose. He's killing to save the two 
women that he has grown to care for over this trip. And he's finding an inner strength within himself. He's like, okay, you know, if nothing doesn't get better, then you know what? I'm going to go out with a bang, you know? And, and it's like a great, yeah. And it's a great parallel because I feel like at that moment, Selena and Jim really, their connection is fully meshed. I think over the course of the narrative, moments like that allow them to understand each other and where the common ground is killing you're exactly right, Kles. There is a sense of what's the purpose behind that? What's the motive? For the zombies themselves, it's not about survival. It's about rage. It's about what's happening inside of me that I can't control myself. For the military guys, it is about selfishness. It's about eliminating every obstacle in order to get what I want. And you could say the same thing about the zombies for sure. The military guys are, in a sense, no different than the zombies, except they are fully conscious of what they're doing, whereas the zombies aren't. They're just tapped into one piece of who they are. And then you get two more kind of iterations of that rage in terms of Jim and Selena. Selena is introduced to us as someone who is seasoned. She's a veteran in this world, this zombie land uh, known as London, with an awareness of what it takes to have one zero emotional connection to the world around her, which I think is a detriment. And I think we're meant to experience that kind of detriment from her perspective because without it, Jim's impact on her life wouldn't be any kind of importance. So Selena starts out as this hardcore, I would say like a, almost like a Sarah Connor type character. And she could in some ways come across as like a real bee, like, come on, have a heart. But then when you find out how seasoned she is and like what she's experienced, it's really all for a reason. It has not come because she's chosen to be this way. It's come to be this way because she has no choice. But what Jim does ironically in his act is bring her attention to the fact that you can fight. You can have that kind of rage as long as you control it and still show ultimately that your motive comes from the heart. It comes from a place of rescue, a place of a savior, a place of wanting to value life outside of yourself. And to me, I think there's a beautiful, beautiful picture in a weird, bloody apocalypse kind of way. But I really do agree. I agree that I think it's what connects them near the end of the movie and how they're able to kind of understand each other. And then I think they're a force to be reckoned with um, because they have, it's almost like they developed the superpower. Like you've discovered the force and you know how to control it now. I think that Jim and Selena discover that because of their relationship with each other. Well, one other question before we dip into our connecting points, unless you have anything you want to add. And um, we touched on this a little bit, that rage, the what the disease is being called uh, we know that for for Boyle and for Garland it's really the it's really the the trigger for something deeper um as a whole on throughout the movie what does 28 days later say about the dark side in each and every one of us i think that we can both agree that it's pointing to the fact that it does exist in each one of us as human beings but is there a message that you pulled out, good or bad, uh, of what these two individuals are saying through this narrative? I would say what I pulled out of it is that, yes, um, every one of us as a human has, you know, good and bad moments. We have moments where we allow our emotions to get the best of us. And, you know, we have the moments where we look back on it's like, man, like, I don't know who I was. And it's like the same thing for the infected. You know, um, these people were normal people. Then they either get blood on them or they get bitten. They just turn into what they were not before. So it's like when we have rage and everything, we turn it into someone we've never seen before. And it may scare us a little bit. Some people are not ready to recognize the fact that they do have a dark side. But I feel that that's what makes you human. Um, like I always say before, um, nobody is perfect. You know, that that's for me, that's for you, that's for anybody out there. But I think what matters is that if you can control it, if you can keep it from letting it dictate your whole personality, then 
it's fine. You know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with having a bad day and there's nothing wrong with making a mistake and lashing out on somebody. As long as you recognize that, hey, like that was unbecoming of me. Um, I did something wrong. I'm not going to try and do that again. Um, I feel that for the for Garland and Boyle, I think what they're trying to say is, is that, hey, all of us in humans have an innate proximity for wanting to do some things we're not proud of. But what matters is that if you can take the good and make that most of your makeup instead of letting the bad overrun you and you just become blinded by it. Like if you become blinded by anger, then nothing's going to turn out good for you. But if you can like look at if you can take yourself out of yourself and look at that anger, and be like, OK, you know, this is what I'm going to do next time to not let myself become like that. Then, hey, we can all become better and we can all become united and more cordial with one another in society. Absolutely. And I would add to that. They're probably saying don't eat so much sugar because it can ruin you <laughs> unless you're in a zombie apocalypse and that's all there is. Then, yes, that's fine. But. Get yourself your spam, get some canned goods, and you know, get some more nutrition. But yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that there's a recognition that there's a dark side in all of us and that we shouldn't deny that. We should recognize that it exists, but being able to control it, being able to understand when it actually shows up and not denying that, I think it's, um, it's an important character trait, especially if someone has anger management issues, recognizing that and being able to say, you know what? There is something in me, and even if I can't get rid of it, I can control it. I mean, I, I know I'm thinking like the Hulk and Banner at this point, but but that's the truth. And I, and I think that's a good analogy because when we think about the ideal state for the Incredible Hulk, for instance, it's when he's able to control that and use it actually as a strength more than anything else. So I, I think that 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 Boyle and Garland are, are doing that in this, and they find that in the character – um, of Jim. So real quick, a couple of technicals I want to I wanna highlight. First of all, again, the zombies are fantastic. I love the fact that they run. I love that. I love that they're not just kind of idly walking like they've got some kind of hamstring injury, right? That they're actually running. They have a purpose. They're not, and they have, there's a brain in them, but that brain, you know, as little as they're, as they're using it, they know that they're going after something. I also think the soundtrack is pretty amazing. I recently watched, um, the Shining again with some coworkers of mine. We had a movie night at work, and the there was a lot of commentary about how the soundtrack was just like at times really jarring. I could see that, but I also recognize it as something that's very purposeful. I think Twenty Eight Days Later does the exact same thing. There's so much tension built up in certain points that it feels very uneven. It almost feels like. Why are you building tension up here when they're trying to get spam from the supermarket, but there's no sound whenever uh, Jim is getting attacked by a priest? You know, I think that's by design because it's meant to leave you feeling very uneven, like you very unexpected. You know, music traditionally in horror films is meant to let you know, hey, something's about to happen, something's about to happen, or if it's that if it's aware of its clicheness, it'll build up and then stop and then the jump scare will happen. 28 Days Later doesn't do that. It ratchets up the tension and then misuses it to an extent to leave you thinking, okay, is there going to be a zombie popping out because the music's not telling me? I don't have any cues here, which is exactly how our characters probably feel. They don't have musical cues to tell them when some undead person is going to come out and try to try to attack them. Yes, the use of music is, is stellar. It's stellar all around. Um, you can see in the beginning when Jim is walking around the empty streets of London, and like when that music comes on, I literally thought that there maybe that's something that was going to pop out and try to attack him the first time I watched it. But it's just like it's just like the music just is like it's building up, it's building up, it's building up, but yet nothing happens. So it kind of leaves the audience kind of guessing like, okay, like you know nothing happened out of there so what's then the next scene you see him going to the church and then boom it's like then that's when you first see the infected with no sound of music like you said before i agree with all of that yeah it's a, it's great sound editing especially when they're traveling on the road and you hear these angelic musical um songs that they use it's very very beautiful especially um there's one shot where they're driving up the road and like they're in the car and they're in like the angelic voices are singing, but it's like they're talking about Manchester and how it's like burning to the ground and no one's there to put out the fire. Then you see the camera kind of tilt up and you see like Manchester, like 
the music is beautiful, but the image is just like disastrous. It's like, wow, like it's very, very emotional. And the and once we get to the connected parts, we'll talk about it more. But the music tour in the end, when Jim finally goes on his rescue mission, is very, very epic. It like it starts out a little slow with a little guitar, little guitar music, and it just like boom, boom. And then the drums, the guitar come in and just builds up, builds up, builds up until it just releases itself. It's it's an amazing job. Um, kudos to um, John Murphy for the work on, this, on the score. Yeah. Well, that's a perfect transition into our connecting points. And if you haven't guessed by now, we both have the same one. It's a fantastic scene. It's the rescue. I call it the, I call it the alarm, AKA the alarm, you know, the moment where he sets off the, the, the siren and it starts the whole thing going. Kales, why don't you, uh, why don't you walk us through why this is your connecting point? Well, the reason for my connecting point is that, as an audience, we're just all cheering for Jim at this point. He's clearly like a really little major underdog. You know, once he didn't let out to the towards that back, you know, where other people have been killed and where the army guys are about to get killed, we we are feeling really sorry for him because we've watched him wake up. He's seen this disease that he doesn't know about. He's had to like see his parents die. He's had to go through so many life-changing things in the span of such lo- short little time that his life is just going to end just like this, you know, but he ends up getting out, escaping. And it's like the whole time you're just like, yes, yes. Like hide right here. Like, Hey, like get him right there. Like sneak up on him right there. Like you're just, um, you're just ecstatic for him whenever he does like take down the military guy. Cause at this point they are the monsters. You know, we're not really worried about the infected is where we're worried about, well, who's going to stop these military guys before they have somebody else gather up into their web of just trying to lure women there. And then also the way it was filmed. Like I love the way that ball like had the quick edits, like when the zombies are attacking, it's like the camera just boom, 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 like just keeps switching and from different shots and it shows the chaos and just the way that the zombies are attacking. It just really builds in that whole rage aspect. And then of course the music, like I explained before, the music is epic. And then you also get the crazy good parallel of Jim and the way he's running around, he's attacking these soldiers. He's almost like the infected. You know, it's very hard to like, to see him as the same gym, it's like he became a whole different person. Like he just went to this whole mode and that's just what he was focused on the whole time. It's just, it's one of my favorite endings of all time. And it's just a fantastic, fantastic sequence. I agree. It's my connecting point to what, what I thought of most throughout the sequence was that I felt like it was in the span of the two and a half minutes that we watched the biggest growth for Jim and understanding his purpose. I think all the way up until that point, he was looking to find a way to survive. And I think that sequence was his way of acting on the idea that he wants to live, which is a very different concept. He realized that Selena and Hannah are valuable, not for sexual purposes, but for companionship that Hannah had to watch her, father get killed and she needs parents although i don't think he's thinking that specific thing but he sees value in what she needs as a human being and he sees what value selena brings to his life in terms of i won't say completing him we're not gonna go uh, we're not gonna go jerry Maguire on that but to see that he's able to grow in that experience i think the culmination of that for me Kales, is when he lets one of the infected loose. I can't remember what the what the guy's name was, but he doesn't even hesitate when he shoots his chain to let him loose. And there was a question asked. I was doing some research on the movie. A question was asked in a Reddit thread. Why would he do that? Why would he release an infected inside the building knowing that the women are there? And there was a great response. He knew where they were. He knew that they were safe on the upper floor. And he knew the infected well enough because of his experience over the last several days that he was able to know that they're probably not going to go searching for the women. (laughs) They're not the military guys. They're going to look for whoever's close by. And for, for, for him, for the, for the infected, it was the military guys on the first floor. So to use the infected as an actual weapon, knowing that these guys were going to probably be distracted by that, was a pretty strategically fantastic thing because up to then 
he seemed like a victim. You know, I think Boyle does this intentionally. He's been sitting however long inside this hospital bed, uh, plugged into all these different cables and, and whatnot. He's got zero muscle on his body. He's butt naked. So there's this vulnerability that we see early on. He's wearing a hospital gown for probably the first 20 or 30 minutes of the movie. It's only until he gets to his parents' house that his clothes change. I think all of this is by design, by the way. And then when he gets to the, the, the bunker, he changes clothes again. And so we see kind of a growth in him. We see him have food in his belly. We see he's kind of getting his life a little bit more balanced. And then at this moment, in this sequence, he has not only the physical strength to be able to do it, but he also has the emotional strength to be able to do it. He's cognizant of what he's doing. I think for the last three weeks or however long he's been awake, he's just trying to get his bearings. And this whole sequence allows him to grow. And the other big thing that I pulled from this is what we talked about a few minutes ago. He uses the rage, not the, not the disease, but he uses the id inside him in order to do something good. And what that tells me is that it's important for us to not only recognize that we have that, but to recognize that it can be a good thing. That fight or flight, that fight mentality that we might have can be a good thing if we know how to use it, if we know when it's appropriate, if we know when to let the Hulk out. And for Jim, that sequence right there really amplified, this is when you are supposed to do it. And so then we get <laughs> at the end of all that, um, they're breaking away and there's that great like freeze frame of he and Selena. It looks like they're about to be thrown through a window and then we get 28 days later and he ends up in a bed and I'm like, oh my gosh, did the zombie apocalypse like part two happen? Come to realize, no, he just, he's waking up from a good sleep and <laughs> he says she took the curtains. I'm like, what? What happened with the curtain? What the deal with the curtains? And you know, it turns out then they're making the big, the big help, help sign, which is pretty fantastic. But yeah, absolutely. I think that's probably my connecting point and probably my favorite scene in the movie, just from a cinematic point of view, but also just from an emotional point of view. All right, real quick question and we'll finish up. Have you seen the sequel to this 28 weeks later? I'm assuming you have. Yes, um, I saw it and it was good, but very disappointing follow up. Okay, so probably, you know, avoid it. Not really worth seeing. Well, not really avoid it. I would say still see it. There are still some great spectacular scenes in it. The opening scene is a definite a gem, and the last scene is a, is a treasure as well. It's just that, I don't know, it felt like they, they were trying to go a little bit too action movie heavy. It lost all of the organic and kind of small scale of the first one in order for, hey, we got a bigger budget. We can show more explosions and everything like that, and we can make the zombies more CGI looking. Like It, it, it ruins it. It ruins it for me. Yeah, sometimes a, sometimes a small budget is a better thing, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, well, that does it for us on this episode of Feeling Film. Uh, Kalesi, if people want to keep the conversation going about this or anything else, where can they find you on social media? Um, you can find me under my name on Facebook. You can find me under the name Black Nerd Magic on Twitter and Instagram. And, yeah, let's chop it up and talk some film. That's good stuff, man. All right, well, coming up in the next few days, uh, Jacob Neff's going to be joining the show for an episode on Ghostbusters while Aaron is still moving. And uh, so he's taking a break. We're going to get Jacob on. So you don't want to miss that. And we're talking about Ghostbusters from 1984, not 2016. I want to make that clear. I wish I didn't have to be clear on that, but, you know, it is what it is. And it'll be a good conversation to celebrate the upcoming uh, Halloween holiday. You know, that's probably as far as I can get when it comes to scary movies on, on Halloween. But sue me, whatever. <laughs> All right, Kales, thank you for a great conversation, and we will talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group, a link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. 
And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.